Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 328, 13 Bad Reasons to Switch from Trinitarian to Unitarian. In this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, I'm going to apply some basic critical thinking skills to some things which I hear Unitarian Christians saying out there. You see, there are lots of reasons why people switch from being a Trinitarian Christian to being a Unitarian Christian, and not all of those reasons are good. Also, at the end of today's podcast, I'm going to answer some listener questions. A few months ago, I started coming up with a list of what I think are bad reasons, and I even solicited some feedback in the Trinity's Podcast Facebook group. And in this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, I'm going to present you this list and my explanations of why they're bad reasons. They basically fall into three categories. Some of these statements are false. They cannot be defended as true. The evidence on the whole is against them. Others are, you could say, half true, or more strictly, they're vague, and they'll be true on some interpretations, but false on other interpretations, and there isn't an interpretation on which this is really a decisive objection. Finally, some of these statements are true, but they're either irrelevant to this Trinitarian versus Unitarian dispute in Christian theology, or they are somewhat relevant, but by itself, it's really not much of a reason to switch. And if you want to follow along or review these 13 bad reasons afterward, they're on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. And there's a common thread here, which is that a number of these depend on the false assumption that, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity is some one theology. Now, that is a standard part of Trinitarian ideology that, hey, there's this doctrine of the Trinity. It's the greatest thing we've got going. It's the big thing that distinguishes Christianity from other religions. It's, you know, the key to understanding all the other parts of Christian theology, this doctrine, whatever it is. Yeah, but the problem is that in the late 300s, standard language was enforced by a council of bishops and then by the empire. And even at that time, there was not one interpretation of that language. And there never has been a time when there was really just one interpretation of what this traditional Trinity language means. And so there hasn't ever really been one Trinity theology. So when Unitarian Christians bring on board this false assumption that there is some one theology called the doctrine of the Trinity, then you get into some bad reasons for switching. Now, the first reason is going to surprise some people because a lot of people, particularly in the apologetics world, just assume that since Dale Tuggy is not a Trinitarian, obviously he just must think the Trinity is incoherent. But nope, that's my first bad reason to switch from Trinitarian to Unitarian, that, quote, the Trinity is incoherent. In other words, it's self-contradictory. It either includes as part of its claims or implies statements of the form P and not P, that some claim is both true and false. 
any theory that's incoherent is itself false. It has to have at least one false claim within it. Now, when you can show that some doctrine or theory is incoherent, that it really implies a contradiction, this is a deadly criticism, right? Because we're after truth. Whatever implies a contradiction has some falsehood within it. And so it's not good. We need to keep going. We want only truth. Now, at first glance, there's a lot of smoke here. And you might think that that means there must be fire. The smoke is in the form of Trinitarians running around emphasizing that the Trinity is a mystery. And in some cases, suggesting that that means that it's an apparent contradiction and maybe also a real contradiction. Also, seemingly the number one thing that apologetics types are coaching one another about is saying, hey guys, the Trinity is not incoherent. If we were saying there are three beings and only one being, that would be incoherent. If we are saying there are three persons and only one person, that would be incoherent. But we are saying there's one being and three persons, and that's not incoherent. Right? As if coherence was the main problem with, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity. Actually, it never has been the main problem. Christians who have objected to Trinity theories have always done so on the basis of New Testament teaching. That's always been the main problem. Now, is the doctrine of the Trinity incoherent? Okay, there isn't any one such theory. There isn't any one such theology. But there are some interpretations of, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity on which, yeah, it does imply contradictions. So any interpretation of the Trinity on which each divine person just is God, each divine person is numerically identical with God, and yet the divine persons are numerically distinct from one another, boom, tons of contradictions follow from that. It's not even really controversial to say that. If you want to see how the contradictions follow, just Google Stanford Trinity and you'll find the Stanford Encyclopedia Philosophy article for the Trinity and look at section 1.4. Just briefly, if you have three different things, that is numerically distinct things, they can't each be numerically the same as the one God. It's just nonsense. So if the Father just is God and the Son just is God, it logically follows that the Father just is the Son. But that's the very thing that we've denied in our Trinity theory. It's a standard part of Trinity theories that the persons really are distinct. So it's false that the Father just is the Son, and yet that the Father just is the Son is directly implied by this interpretation of, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity. So game over, right? Wrong. Because if you look at the rest of that Trinity entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, pretty much all the other theories are trying to work around this. They don't have all the persons being numerically identical to God and yet numerically distinct from one another. They try to get around this in various ways. So Trinitarians run around acting like this is the big threat. Hey, is this going to turn out to be self-contradictory? That is to say, logically incoherent. And frankly, a few Trinitarians are just happy to accept that it is. They think there can be true contradictions, but that's a minority viewpoint. You say, Tuggy, come on. You got three gods and one God. You got three distinct persons, but they can't really be distinct from one another. Like, come on, how can there not be a contradiction here? Well, 
Some Trinitarians, such as the two most famous 20th century Trinitarian theologians, one of them Roman Catholic, one of them Reformed, seem to think that the Trinity really amounts to just one self who lives in three ways or has three personalities or plays three different roles at the same time or in eternity. And that doesn't seem to imply a contradiction. It's not a contradiction to suppose that there's one God, which is understood to be a perfect self who lives in three different ways, or who has three different personalities, or plays three different roles. There's no apparent contradiction there, right? Other Trinitarians just get rid of identifying the persons with God. For them, quote, God is a group of three, or maybe a complex object with three parts, And the persons of the Trinity are three divine beings, which are the members of this group or the parts of this whole. Either way, there's no apparent contradiction there, at least not for anything we've said. Now you might say, hold on a second there. How can you really have the Father and Son be just one God in two different roles or two personalities of one God? That's not going to fit with the New Testament, is it? Right. But that's to move on from trying to just drop this atomic bomb objection and be done with it. Instead of just trying to show incoherence and so the thing must be false, we're now saying, hey, does that really fit with what the New Testament says? And that's a better objection. There's a temptation here to just kind of dispatch the Trinity in one fell swoop. Just one move here. Aha, it's incoherent. Boom, spike the ball, do a little touchdown dance, and hey, we're done. No, we're really going to have to argue about the Bible. It's just not going to be that simple. Somebody who just doesn't accept the incoherence, they can go out there and find some Trinity theories that arguably are coherent. Again, you might say, not so fast. How can you have three divine beings? And then the one quote God is supposedly a group of these? That sounds crazy. Yeah, but that's to switch from this objection of incoherence to an objection that this doesn't really fit with the Bible. So when you're talking to somebody, they may give you an interpretation of, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity, which is incoherent, and then it's perfectly fair to point that out. But if you're trying to argue against, quote, the Trinity in general, this isn't going to be good. It's false to say that the Trinity is incoherent because there are many Trinity theories. Some of them are incoherent. Some of them seem not to be. Some could be argued either way. Again, this objection brings on that false assumption that the doctrine of the Trinity is some one theology, but it's not. Second bad reason is that Trinitarians simply confuse together Jesus and God. That is to say, they numerically identify them. Now this is, we have to say, a huge mistake. Jesus can't be the mediator between God and man if he's just God. You can't be a mediator and be one of the parties between whom one is mediating. That just doesn't make any sense. Jesus can't be numerically identical to God, oh, and also be the Son of God. That doesn't make any sense. And you shouldn't confuse Jesus with God, because then it would follow that since Jesus died for our sins, then God died for our sins. And the New Testament does not anywhere teach that God died for our sins. It says in Romans 5 that we know how much God loves us because Christ died for us. In the New Testament, God sends someone else, and that someone else dies for our sins. 
God is essentially immortal and so can't die. So I've just said that, yes, some Trinitarians absolutely do just confuse together Jesus and God, like think they are one and the same, like Clark Kent and Superman are one and the same, or Mark Twain and Samuel Clemens are one and the same. They just can't be. There's differences between them in the New Testament. And even according to Trinitarian theology, there are going to be differences between them. God is supposed to be triune and Jesus won't be triune. Okay, so why is this a bad reason to switch from Trinitarian to Unitarian? The answer is that some Trinity theories confuse together Jesus with God, and some of them don't. Some of them distinguish between Jesus and God. And these would be particularly the three self theories. Some of them would say that Jesus is a part of God. Others would say that Jesus is a member of that group of three divine beings, which is God. Either way, they're not identifying Jesus with God. They're not simply collapsing them together into the same one. And so, to say just generally that Trinitarians simply confuse together Jesus and God is not true. Some do, some don't. Now, again, confusing Jesus with God is a big part of what's going on. Many supposed Trinitarians, even pseudo-experts like Dr. James White, they really don't have any interpretation of traditional Trinity language. And when you ask them to defend the Trinity, they just come back with proof texts that Jesus is God. So, they do confuse Jesus with God, and they really don't know how this fits with, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity. They just don't think much about the doctrine of the Trinity. So, for many Bible-oriented evangelicals, the deity of Christ, meaning that Jesus and God are one and the same, that's foundational. And they think they can just read that in a few texts like the prologue to the fourth gospel, John chapter 1. But the Trinity, they just think of that as it's the deity of Christ, oh, and also the deity of the Holy Spirit. But of course, it's a lot more than that. And if you're stuck in thinking that's all the Trinity is, I would encourage you to check out Trinity's podcast 260, which is called How to Argue That the Bible is Trinitarian. And I'll put a link to that episode in the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Trinitarians, like I just described, who really just think it's the deity of Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit, along with the deity of the Father, they just accept confusion as the norm when it comes to the Trinity. They don't really have anything interesting to say about the topic of the Trinity. For them, it's just a footnote to the deity of Christ. Okay, but more serious Trinitarians do have views about what the Oneusia and the three hypostases are supposed to amount to. The third bad reason to switch from Trinitarian to Unitarian is that the Trinity amounts to three gods. It's just tritheism. Again, this is arguably true about some Trinity theories, but not about others. When your Trinity theory has three beings, each of which has the divine essence, and the divine essence is understood to be everything it takes to be a god, then yeah, it looks like you've got three gods. This is the big objection to three-self trinity theories, and it's very well explored in the recent analytic theology literature. 
But there are also oneself Trinity theories on which there is just one thing, one being there in the Trinity which has the divine nature, and this one thing which has the divine nature is one God, and this God is somehow tripersonal. Yeah, that seems like monotheism. Now, you'll just irritate really any educated Trinitarian with this objection, because they will say, you can't say the Trinity is three gods, because just by definition, we're monotheists. Yes, monotheism is part of any Trinity theory, but the problem with the three self theories is they say there's only one God, and yet the other things that are in the theory seem to imply that it's false that there's only one God. It doesn't help to have monotheism be explicitly part of the theory if the theory also implies the falsity of monotheism, or that there are three gods. But again, for oneself theories, there's only one thing which has everything it takes to be a god, that is, the divine essence or the divine nature, and that one thing is in some sense tripersonal, three modes, personalities, ways of interacting, roles that are played... But anyway, it's a theology on which there's one God. So this claim that the Trinity amounts to three gods is false, because there are some Trinity theories which are arguably tritheistic despite themselves, but then other ones just aren't. And Trinitarians, who really just, you know, kind of repeat the language and say it's an ineffable mystery, I mean, there's not enough content in what they have just said for it to imply three gods. So if you're a really woolly-headed Mysterian, it's going to be pretty hard to convict you of tritheism. When the Trinity's podcast returns, three more false reasons that people give for switching from Trinitarian to Unitarian. fourth reason is pretty closely connected to the third, and it's that Unitarian Christian theology is the only Christian way to be monotheistic. We're the Christian monotheists. Trinitarians, not monotheists. Now, we've just seen why that's not true. There are some Trinitarians who have a theology that's indisputably monotheistic. And unfortunately, this claim is false as well. Here's a Christian theology, Oneness Pentecostalism. This is a monotheistic theology, and it's not, strictly speaking, Unitarian. A Unitarian Christian theology is one on which the one true God just is the Father alone. Oneness thinks that the one true God is the Father and Son and Spirit, and so they just collapse them, but yeah, that's a kind of monotheism. Oneness views are really hard to distinguish from the one-self trinity theories. And both seem to be monotheistic and not polytheistic or tritheistic. Now you might say, come on, any Trinitarian is committed to the Nicene Creed. And in the Nicene Creed, it talks about true God from true God. It's talking about eternal generation. So the true God who's from the true God is the Son. It's saying that the Son is eternally generated by the Father. 
right? So there are two different ones, each of which are called a true God. So isn't that multiple gods? Again, it just depends on the Trinity theory. There are two different uses of the phrase true God here. On one usage, it refers to the Father, and the other usage, it refers to the Son. But it doesn't follow that there are multiple gods involved. They just call the various divine persons God. Different, quote, gods, in other words, the word God is equivocal and can be used to refer to different ones, that's not the same as polytheism, which isn't a point about word usage, but it's a point about how many gods there are. It's not true that everything which is called, quote, God is a god, and so if more than one thing is called, quote, God, it doesn't follow that there is more than one God, but only that there is more than one, quote, God. Do you see the difference? Now, again, you might have a Trinity theory, which is tritheistic, but just talk about true God from true God. That is something that can be said by a oneself Trinity theory, and maybe even by a oneness theologian or an ancient modalistic monarchian. Right, so oneself Trinity theories are monotheistic. Oneness theology is monotheistic. Ancient modalistic monarchians are monotheistic, and none of those are Unitarian. So it's false to say that Unitarian Christian theology is the only Christian way to be monotheistic. The true God from true God for these guys might amount, depending what they think, quote, the Trinity is, it might amount to just one and the same God being referred to in different ways via different modes or personalities or roles. The fifth bad reason, yet another false claim, is that the Trinity was invented at Nicaea, uh, or at least one of those councils. Now, I think both of those claims are false. The Trinity was not invented at Nicaea in 325. There is no tripersonal God mentioned in that creed and in that whole dispute surrounding the events of 325. Was it invented by some other council? Not really. As I understand it, this new Trinity idea was kind of in the air among some Nicene Catholic thinkers in at least the 370s, and maybe in spots here and there a little bit before that. So Gregory of Nazianzus and Gregory of Nyssa, I think, had the idea before the 381 council. It is true that this new Trinity idea was enforced by the 381 Council, and thereafter by the might of the Roman Empire. So, quote, agreement was achieved by force, by the bishops in collusion with the Roman Empire. And yet, I wouldn't say that this idea of a tripersonal God was invented by one of the councils. It was affirmed by those councils, but I think it was speculated up just prior to what came to be called the Second Ecumenical Council. The sixth reason is that Trinitarians have always been vicious persecutors. Right? Have you heard? Calvin murdered Servetus. Well, okay, maybe not you know, with his own hands, but maybe there was some culpability there in the things that Calvin said and wrote and so on. Yes, we have heard about the whole sad Servetus affair, but let's simmer down here, folks. The statement is both false and irrelevant. It's false that Trinitarians have always been vicious persecutors. Trinitarians have run the whole gamut of different views about religious persecution. There have been Trinitarians which are amongst the worst persecutors, and then there are Trinitarians nowadays who are perfectly well in favor of religious freedom. 
who would never dream of trying to harness the power of the state to give the death penalty to non-Trinitarian Christians. Trinitarians have varied according to where mainstream Christianity was at the time. Early on, before mainstream Christianity hooked up with the Roman Empire, there was no persecution. They didn't have the means to do it. They wouldn't ever think of doing it. Of course, strictly speaking, there weren't any Trinitarians in those days. And then, when the empire got involved in enforcing the orthodoxy of the bishops, yeah, you had people eventually being put to death because they don't accept some trinity theory or other. Both of these tragic events happened in the 300s. As the 300s went on through a series of steps, mainstream Christianity hooked itself up with the Roman Empire. You had emperor-sponsored councils of bishops now determining doctrinal questions, and eventually the emperor weighs in and says the Nicenes are right, and so it was in the late 300s when mainstream Christianity switched from being Unitarian to demanding some sort of view about a triune God. For the details on this, you can see my short book, What is the Trinity?, or my published paper, When and How in the History of Theology Did the Triune God Replace the Father as the Only True God? But, thanks be to God, in the modern era, and in part due to the efforts of Unitarian Christians, mainstream Christianity has decided, pretty decisively, that this is not their role to kill heretics. Heretics should be persuaded, maybe shunned, maybe warned about, maybe publicly opposed and denounced, but no, not killed, not having their possessions seized, not thrown in jail. There is, quote, persecution of non-Trinitarians, you know, getting run out of a church, being publicly defamed, losing one's job as a minister, But, yeah, not like the kind of persecution that's happened in the past, right? Not like being burned at the stake. Thank God. In sum, the most important point here is that Trinitarians being persecutors, or just Trinitarians' bad behavior in general, is strictly irrelevant to the truth of Trinity theories. When the Trinity's podcast returns, some half-true reasons and a true one. seventh bad reason to switch from being Trinitarian to being Unitarian is that the Trinity has pagan roots. Now this one's a bit of a head-scratcher. Some people, I think, almost imagine that all pagan things are just irredeemably dirty and just corrupted and can't be put to any good use. Well, here's something that has pagan roots. Me. What is a pagan? It kind of means non-Jew and non-Christian. 
So it's a person who adheres to traditional religion, which involves idolatry and mythology and other undesirable things. Okay, well, I'm not Jewish. If you trace back my ancestors, you know, in recent times, most of them are Christian, but go back far enough and you just get a bunch of pagans, right? You're going to find these Northern European white pagans that have this awful pantheon and, you know, sacrifice humans and participate in magic and idol worship and all this stuff. Those are my pagan roots. Now, look, those are just certain ethnic groups and they're not inherently corrupt. We shouldn't think that pagan things are just irredeemable. They're not. Now, there are some truths here and some falsehoods depending on what we mean by saying that the Trinity has pagan roots. Here's a clear falsehood, and this is one way of interpreting the seventh reason. It's that there are many pagan trinities. Like, hey guys, this idea of a tripersonal God, a triune God, you know, three persons and one God... That's just all over the world's religions. You have it in Hinduism and, and in Buddhism and in various pagan religions, just all over the place. And, you know, this just infected Christianity in the first couple hundred years. Now, as far as I can tell, this is not true. You can find pieces of art, you know, with three faces, three heads, three deities standing together. And they do look like some Christian depictions of the Trinity that you see in Catholic art. But usually, these are just collections of three gods. Like, this god is the creator, that god's the preserver, and that god's the destroyer of the ages or the world order. Or it could be a father, mother, and child, a family of deities. Or sometimes, it's just one god who plays three roles. This is a famous three-headed idol that I've actually seen in India, the god Shiva, and it's depicting him as creator, preserver, and destroyer. So whereas other Hindus said, hey, there was one god that did each of those three roles, these Shaivite Hindus are saying, no, it's really Shiva that does those three roles. Now, yeah, that's similar to some Trinity theories, but really, this formula of one usia and three hypostases is really Christian. You can find some similar things that have been said in the Platonic tradition before Catholic Christianity started to be, properly speaking, Trinitarian. So the truth is that there were, in the second and third centuries, some pagan, that is to say, Greek philosophical ideas that were influential in the development of Christian thinking about the triad of God, God's Logos, and God's Spirit, which eventually morphs into thinking about the Trinity as a triune God. There was a fashion in Platonic philosophies for transcendent triads, and the foundational member of these triads would be the one or the good, which is the ultimate reality in Platonic philosophy. The second and third would be called things like the noose or mind and the world, soul, or spirit. Yeah, but again, that's not a tripersonal god. The one isn't a god. It's an impersonal something or other. There is a collection of three things here, but that collection isn't a god either. When Christians started to speculate about their own transcendent triad, the founding member of the triad was God, that is to say, the Father. And then either before creation or 
at all previous times, this God emanated out the Logos and the Spirit. So there are two other lesser divine beings which depend for their existence on this ultimate divine being, which is the one true God. That's early Christian triadic thinking, which nowadays is misdescribed as early Trinitarianism. Okay, so what I just said I think is true. It's false that the non-Christian world is just full of trying gods and this just made its way into Christianity. But also, look, it's just irrelevant if the Trinity has pagan roots. A Trinitarian can just say, well, I think that God prepared his people for this wonderful deep truth about God's triunity by sort of seeding these Greek philosophers with similar ideas. Or maybe, you know, people like Plato even just had a little glimpse of, you know, this heavenly triadic reality. And so this was useful later on when people who revered Plato needed to theorize about God. In short, pagan triadic speculations could, logically speaking, have been used by God as just a kind of nice preparation for this Trinitarian theology that was coming along. It's really not a disqualifier if the Trinity has pagan roots. Now, if you're looking for bad Platonic influences in Christian theology, let me tell you, the real action is regarding different divine attributes. So it came to be assumed in Christian theology that God has some of the features which the Platonists thought were had by the one or the good, which was their ultimate reality. And so, from a pretty early date, you have Christian theologians just assuming that God is timeless. Well, not in the Bible. And they just assume that God is impassable, incapable of being affected by things or of having certain kinds of emotions. Well, seemingly not in the Bible. God is understood to be utterly changeless. He can't change in any respect. Well, not in the Bible. If God forgives you, he goes from not having forgiven you to having forgiven you. And then finally, there's the super-duper bewildering, bizarro claim of divine simplicity. I'm not even going to go into that here, but you can check out the entry on that in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. This is really where the action is in contemporary theology about undoing the unfortunate influence of Platonic ideas. The work of the excellent young analytic theologian, Dr. Ryan Mullins, is all about trying to roll back some of these mistakes in favor of more biblical ways of thinking about God. For another very unfortunate area of influence, which I think has been underexplored in the scholarship, check out a presentation by my friend, the Unitarian pastor, Sean Finnegan, called Platonic Christianity, Rejecting God's Kingdom as Crude. This is about early, quote, fathers who just do not like the idea of a literal kingdom of God on earth, and so who want to replace it with some idea of flying off to another realm, the sort of afterlife you had speculated about in Platonic philosophies slash religions. I'll put a link for that on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Just denouncing the Trinity as pagan That's just not going anywhere. Again, it's either false or it's true, but not really relevant. Proponents of Trinity theories typically claim that their theology best makes sense of Christian scripture. And given that, it just won't do to complain that their ideas really 
come from pagans. The ultimate farthest back roots of these ideas don't matter if the Trinitarians are right that their theology best makes sense of Christian scripture. Bad reason for switching number eight is closely related. It says that the New Testament is Hebraic, not Hellenistic. But you need Hellenistic terminology to even state the doctrine of the Trinity. Again, this is half true, but it's not going to be both true and relevant. You do need Greek, you could say, philosophical terminology to state you know, the classic creedal formulas. The Trinity is one usia, or essence, or substance, and three hypostases, three beings, or persons, or things. Both of these terms have a lot of different uses within various classical philosophies, and both of them can be interpreted in very different ways by today's Trinitarians. But here's the thing. There's a strong current in contemporary, recent, last 50 years, Trinitarian academic theology of just ignoring the classical terminology and trying to come up with something more relevant and better. So the work of Richard Bauckham is a fine example of what I'm talking about, but it's a very widespread trend. So they say, yeah, this old Greek terminology, you know, for some reason, it doesn't mean much to us today. You know, we're not Aristotelians or Platonists. And so can we just restate the doctrine of the Trinity and the incarnation in contemporary terms that we could understand? So these people have a Trinity theory of a sort, but they don't have the old Greek terminology. It's really not fundamental for them. And look at any contemporary creed, you know, by the Southern Baptists. It'll say something like, there's one God who exists in three persons, right? Nothing particularly Greek philosophical about that. It's in English, and it's not really in philosophical terms. It's not precise enough to be. Okay, what about the claim that the New Testament is Hebraic, not Hellenistic? Well, I think it's really a false dichotomy. The New Testament is clearly both Hebraic and Hellenistic. Maybe they're getting at something true when they say that it's Hebraic, not Hellenistic, which is that the big influence, the big background behind the New Testament is the Old Testament. What lies behind it really is Jewish thinking. That's true. However, these Jews had been influenced for hundreds of years by that time by Greek language and culture and philosophy. So those Jews are somewhat Hellenistic. This fact is just lying right on the face of the New Testament, which is written in Koine Greek. Just by being written in Koine Greek, it's somewhat Hellenistic. And these Jews, yeah, the foundation of their thinking, in a sense, is the Hebrew scriptures. But by the time of Christ, for quite some time, most of the Jews had been using their scriptures in Greek translation, most famously in the Septuagint translation. So there is no pure Hebraism to be found. It's all written in Greek. It's to some extent influenced by Greek concepts, indirectly by Greek philosophy. A person who's clearly both Hebraic and Hellenistic is Paul. But, I mean, it really applies to all of them. 
There was no escaping the wide influence of Greek culture in this period. And that's not as bad as you might be imagining. Guys, classical Greek philosophies, that's a huge subject. When I was a graduate student at Brown University, I was the teaching assistant for a class surveying ancient Greek philosophy, and I actually taught a class on this once when I was a young professor. It contains the good, the bad, and the ugly. The schools are very different from one another. The Epicureans, for instance, are very different than the Stoics, and they are very different than the Platonists. But each of these schools, while they have important mistakes contained in them, important falsehoods that they're teaching, they also have important truths. They're not 100% garbage. There are reasons why human beings found these systems of thought to be compelling for hundreds of years. So there are truths to be found in all of the ancient Greek philosophical schools, some more than others. All of them have their limitations and their problems. But you shouldn't go around supposing that Greek influence is just 100% bad. The Greeks are just another ethnic group, like present-day Chinese, or the Mexicans of 200 years ago, or the British from the 1300s. They're people made in God's image and likeness, and there's a tragic mix of beauty and ugliness there. The ninth bad reason to switch from being Trinitarian to Unitarian is actually true, and that is that Jesus did not teach the Trinity. Whatever, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity amounts to, it's just not something we have any reason to think was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is true, and it's really provable when you look carefully at the evidence. And it's very worrisome. I mean, Jesus is our Lord and Master. We're supposed to follow him in all things, but he didn't teach this? Ooh, wait. We better really examine then what the credentials of the Trinity really are. The problem with this reason, though, even though it's true that Jesus did not teach any Trinity theory, it's not strictly relevant. The question is, is there a Trinity theory taught anywhere in Scripture? Now, Jesus was the greatest revealer of God, but he has not been the only one. And as Jesus taught us in John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears and will declare to you the things that are to come. What he's saying is that there is further divine revelation coming. And that's what Christians have always thought, because there was further divine revelation to Paul and to the other apostles, specifically relating to what to do about the law and the Gentiles. That was unclear at the time that Jesus died and was raised and ascended to heaven. But mainstream Christianity eventually came to some conclusions about those topics, And they really go back to things you see described in the book of Acts and even in Paul's letter to the Galatians. So it could be true that Jesus did not teach the Trinity, and yet somehow the Trinity is revealed in the scriptures that were written after Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, of course, there isn't any Trinity theory taught in those either. But the point is... This is not, by itself, a good reason to reject, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity. It's at most a worrisome fact. When the Trinity's podcast returns, my final four reasons, each of which are true, but not strictly relevant.
Tenth reason to switch is that the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Now, this is true. You can take any piece of Bible software and just search the translation for the word Trinity. And if the word Trinity is in the book at all, it's just in a header that was supplied by the translators. If you're talking about the actual translated words of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, No, the word Trinity will never, ever be there anywhere. And this is because when the books of the Bible were written, there was no Hebrew or Greek word meaning Trinity. Now, it doesn't follow that the Bible doesn't teach a Trinitarian doctrine about God, because it might just do that without using the word Trinity. There are lots of words which are useful for Christian theology, but which are not words found in the Bible, such as the word omniscient. And Trinitarian apologists love to bat this one around, like, ha-ha, these silly anti-Trinitarians, they point out that the word Trinity is not in the Bible, and they just think they've won. Ha-ha, how naive. The word doesn't have to be there for the concept to be there. The theology can be implied by what's there without using that particular label for the theology, without using that particular word for God or the label Trinitarian for the theology. Yes, and this defense is all correct, but still the joke's on them, because the concept of the Trinity is absolutely not anywhere in the Bible, and the word Trinity not being there is kind of a clue that's very important. So the way we should think about this is, is the term Trinity there? No. Okay. But the question is, is there a concept of a tripersonal God anywhere in there? And the answer to that is also no. What's really telling is not just that the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, but that there isn't any term in the Bible, such as Theos or Elohim, which was then understood to refer to a triune God. That is an important negative piece of evidence. If these authors had believed in a triune God, the first thing they would do would be to find a way of referring to that triune God. Now, they could use the word Trinity, or they could just use a phrase like the heavenly three or something, or they could coin a new usage of an old term. Right? Whereas in the New Testament, theos nearly always refers to the Father, and then in a few cases can refer to beings which are less than God. They could say, hey guys, from now on, we're going to use theos mainly to mean the Trinity. In other words, let's use that word theos, God, to mean the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three of them together, understood as one God. They could have said something like that, but they don't do that. And that they don't have any term which they understood to refer to a triune God is very strong evidence that they did not believe in a triune God. So that the word Trinity is not in the Bible 
is an important observation, but by itself, it's not at all a reason to switch from being Trinitarian to being Unitarian. What's an important reason is that there isn't any concept of a triune God in the Bible. There isn't any Trinity theory whatsoever in the Bible. And of course, what is in the Bible everywhere is a teaching that the one true God is a certain single someone, a certain he, Yahweh, in the New Testament, God the Father. Reason number 11, and this is one that I hear constantly, and it's true, is that Trinity theories are confusing. Well, yeah, generally speaking, they they are confusing. I mean, they're hard to square with the Bible. They're just not a natural way of thinking about the one God. They're hard to fit together with Christian spirituality and preaching and piety. Just with Christians' spiritual life, they seem to not be Trinitarian most of the time. Yeah, and when you try to show how there could be three divine persons, but only one God, since on the face of it you would think that a God just is a divine person, yeah, that is very confusing. But this point is irrelevant. It's just a subjective complaint. Maybe sometimes the truth is confusing. Also, I would say that some Trinity theories are a lot less confusing than others. Some of them are just straight-up paradoxical, like they seem to be apparently self-contradictory. Others are just super weird, and you're way off in metaphysics la-la land by the time you've half even stated the theory. But other ones, yeah, not so much. God playing three roles, God relating to us in three different ways, that's really not that confusing. Of course, whether it fits with scripture is really the issue. If some Trinity theory was required by scripture, and yet it was confusing, we would just have to live with that, right? So then to just say that some or most or all Trinity theories are confusing, it's really not to the point. Number 12, most Christians in officially Trinitarian groups are confused about what the Trinity amounts to and are afraid to look into the matter. This is true, and it's worrisome to be sure. But, given the truth of this, still maybe there is some true Trinity theology that's actually taught by Scripture. Maybe most Christians in officially Trinitarian groups just need to be braver Maybe they need to study more and get more clarity about what this doctrine of the Trinity really is. Maybe their teachers just need to be more diligent in indoctrinating them into these difficult matters. By itself, 12 is not a reason to switch from being Trinitarian to being Unitarian. Finally, now we've gotten to the last bad reason to switch from being Trinitarian to being Unitarian, which is number 13. The most learned Trinitarians disagree with one another about what the doctrine of the Trinity is. Now, this is true, and it's something that the professionals kind of keep on the down low. They kind of massage it and de-emphasize it. They say, well, there's Eastern and Western approaches. Well, there's Latin and social approaches. Well, there are different starting points. There are some differences of terminology. Okay, but when you actually carefully spell out what the various claims are, you realize that we're dealing with incompatible theories here. 
each of which is claiming to be, or hoping to be, the doctrine of the Trinity. Just go back to the three-self and the one-self approaches. The one-selfers really think there's one he in the Trinity. That's just God. There are three, quote, persons there, but the persons are not selves. There's only one self there. The persons are something like personalities. They're usually kind of none too clear about what the persons are, but anyway, they're not selves. So there's just one divine being in this picture. There's one being who has the divine essence, who has all the essential divine attributes. The three selfers who run around talking about God as a you know perfect dance of love, they have three different selves, each of which has the divine essence. So each of them seems to have everything it takes to be a God. Look, just logically, the one-self Trinitarian theology might be true, or some three-self Trinitarian theology might be true, but just logically, they can't both be true. If one is true, the other will be false. Now, they might both be false, and you know the Mysterians are correct, or the relative identity theorists, etc. And there's the four-self people, I won't get into them. So there is real disagreement here about what, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity is. And it's not a matter of emphasis, and it's not just a matter of starting points, and it's not just a matter of terminology. You really do have clashing, incompatible theologies being offered here as what this traditional Trinity language is supposed to be expressing. Okay, so this is true that the most learned Unitarians disagree with one another about what the doctrine of the Trinity is, and that's worrisome, but it's not decisive. Even though that's true, there still could be a true one among the Trinity theories. Maybe it's just so difficult that even the experts disagree, and yet some of those experts are correct that this is what the doctrine of the Trinity is. So it doesn't follow from this fact of disagreement that there isn't a true Trinity theory. That would be a non sequitur. That would be an invalid inference. This disagreement logically is compatible with a true Trinity theory. There is a problem, I think, though, that lies close at hand. Most Trinitarians think that, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity has been divinely revealed. And it seems hard to square divine revelation with this much disagreement among the experts. It should be a matter of Christian consensus if really it's been divinely revealed. Like the claims that Jesus is God's Messiah, that he was crucified, that he was raised from the dead after three days, that he was exalted, that he's the unique Son of God, that his death was an atonement for human sin. These things have been divinely revealed, and because God is a competent revealer, you find near-universal Christian agreement about these things all through Christian history. You don't find that about, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity. And that suggests that there is no such divinely revealed doctrine, that Trinity theories are just that, they're human attempts to make sense of divine revelation, but these theories themselves are not part of divine revelation. So this truth, number 13, seems like a problem for the view that the doctrine of the Trinity was divinely revealed by God to Christians generally. Similarly, if you just say, hey, there's been a long-standing Christian consensus about the Trinity, no, not really. 
there are these competing ideas in the field, and there is a kind of consensus there, but it's largely but not completely verbal. Most Trinitarians will think, yeah, there's this tripersonal God, there's this three-in-one God, that's what the Trinity is, but they don't really know what this three-in-one idea is supposed to amount to. So there's a widespread, long-standing consensus that goes back to about the year 381 about a very vague idea of a tripersonal God. But there isn't any consensus about any understandable Trinity theology. So if you're going to say, hey, this is just a matter of Christian consensus, and yet it's a long-standing fact that the experts have disagreed about what this doctrine is, that suggests it's a case of fool's gold. It's not a real deep consensus. It's a kind of surface linguistic vague idea consensus that really hides a lot of disagreement in the camp. If you're a Trinitarian, I think this should open your mind somewhat to the possibility that this whole tradition could be a series of missteps that needs to be walked back in light of the New Testament. And these deep disagreements within the Trinitarian camp, this is not a recent phenomenon. There was a very interesting controversy among mostly Anglicans in London, England, that went from about 1689 to 1698, when it was forcibly stopped by the king. And this controversy between Trinitarians and Unitarians just revealed uh, some very deep differences in the Trinity camp. And this was something that was widely known in early modern times and widely commented on by earlier Unitarian Christians. There's a good historical book on this by a guy named Dixon. The short title is Nice and Hot Disputes. And this summarizes this roughly decade-long controversy, and it tells you about the various different camps of Trinitarians. Really, you find that pretty much all the same general interpretations are around today, and they're still competing with one another among that select crowd of Trinitarians, which actually has a fairly settled interpretation of the words. Okay, so those are 13 bad reasons to switch from being Trinitarian to being Unitarian. Did I leave any bad reasons out? Or would you stand up for some of the reasons that I said were bad reasons? Hey, no, they really are good reasons. Let us know what you think by leaving us a comment on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org or in our Trinities Podcast Facebook group. When the Trinities Podcast returns, two good reasons for making the switch and my answers to some listener questions. Let me just say what I think are the two best reasons for switching from being Trinitarian to being Unitarian. One is seeing that New Testament theology actually rules out that the one God just is the Trinity. For more on this, see podcast 248, How Trinity Theories Conflict with the Bible. Briefly, 
If the one true God just is the Father alone, that rules out the one true God being the Trinity. And so it looks like there's a clash between New Testament theology and later mainstream Christian traditions. And are you going to be a good Protestant and side with the Bible, or are you going to be Catholic or Orthodox or Catholic light in the form of mainstream Protestantism and just sort of try to twist the Bible to fit later ideas? Or maybe just ignore the Bible in preference of later creeds and confessions. The second best reason is that the New Testament, rightly understood, just fails to motivate any sort of Trinity theory. There aren't enough claims in the New Testament to get a Trinitarian theory going. All Trinity theories are leaping beyond what's actually taught in the New Testament. It's just not true that some Trinity theory best explains what is and is not in the New Testament. And it's not true that all the, quote, building blocks of the doctrine are in there, and we just have to come along and put them all together in the right order. For more on that, check out Trinity's podcast number 189, The Unfinished Business of the Reformation, podcast 191, Where's Outline of the Testimony of Scripture Against the Trinity, and again, podcast 260, How to Argue that the Bible is Trinitarian. Once you understand these things, that the New Testament fails to provide enough building blocks to get a Trinity theory, and in fact teaches something incompatible with any theory about a triune God, then you'll be fully inoculated against Trinitarian speculations. The issues really are scriptural, and the bad reasons I've discussed in this episode, most of them are really a distraction from what matters. Both Trinitarian and Unitarian Christians are trying to be disciples of the Lord Jesus and to follow his teaching and the teaching of his apostles. The issue is, who's getting that teaching right? Does that teaching really encode some triune God theology? Or is the true theology just right on the face of the New Testament that the one true God just is the Father himself and not anyone else? Let's give our Trinitarian Christian friends good reasons for switching. Let's not distract them with falsehoods or irrelevant truths. Let's help them to dig into Scripture. One relevant way for us to love our neighbor is to just help them to explore what is this Trinity doctrine supposed to be. Let them go from one interpretation to the other. Help them to do that. Lead them by the hand through the different Trinity theories. They all have problems with the Bible, just in different ways. Sometimes when somebody has tightly held speculations and you go for the full frontal assault, they just cling to them all the more strongly. We need to instead help them to explore their way around the theological landscape. Because if they seek humbly and sincerely asking for God's help, I think they will happen upon actual New Testament teaching about the one true God and about his unique Son. Okay, I want to finish up today's episode by answering some listener questions. The first questions are from Matt, and he messaged me through Patreon. And by the way, if you'd like to support the Trinity's podcast, Patreon is the way to do it. Just go to patreon.com slash trinities. Matt writes, Hey Dale, I'm a convinced Unitarian in large part thanks to you, and I really appreciate the work you do. I have two questions I was hoping you could help me with. 
one, I'm currently more inclined to think that Jesus did not have a heavenly spiritual existence prior to being born, but I'm finding myself not entirely satisfied by the explanation of the passages in John, which potentially indicate Jesus had a pre-existent state. John 1 is not my issue, but passages like John 3.13, 8.58, and 17.5. The explanations I have heard for each of these make sense to me, but have not left me thoroughly convinced. Could you direct me to any of your podcasts that deal with these passages in detail, please? And I'll come back to his second question in a minute. Thank you, Matt. I'm very glad that the podcast has been helpful to you, and I'm happy to answer these questions. John 3.13, 8.58, and 17.5 are different animals, but in general, I think you ought to look at my overall case against pre-existence, which is podcast 235, which looks at all of scripture, but also brings in some elements of common sense, that is, things that God has made every human such that they can know. There are some considerations, I think, about the real humanity, Jesus being a real human man, which should tip one in the direction of being against pre-existence. Also, I think some of my older episodes would be helpful, namely 61 through 63. 61 and 62 are interviews with Dr. Dustin Smith about pre-existence and this ancient Jewish way of talking about things as having always existed with God which is really just a way of saying that those things have always been destined to come into existence. And the Messiah traditionally was one of those. About John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This occurs in the conversation with Nicodemus in John 3. Jesus here is being very figurative. He says he's talking about heavenly things. Now, he can't literally mean that no one has ascended into heaven, because some Old Testament figures are said to have done that. I think by ascended into heaven, he means something like just having an adequate understanding of God. And when he talks about being descended from heaven, he's just talking about basically being God-sent. Like James says in James 1.17, Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Yeah, so even a man who comes into existence sometime between conception and birth can be said to have come down from heaven from God. It's a Jewish way of talking about God's blessings, basically. And keep in mind that two very clear themes of the fourth gospel are that Jesus is from God and that Jesus is the best revealer of God. John 8.58 I think there's really a translation problem going on with a lot of our current versions. I think his meaning has to be, before Abraham was, I am he, or I am the one. And don't make the mistake of taking his Jewish opponents too seriously here. Quote, the Jews that he's having arguments with in the gospel according to John are kind of clownish figures that are constantly misunderstanding his meaning and even taking him too literally. And if you look at what he says, he doesn't say he's as old as Abraham. He doesn't say that he existed in the time of Abraham. So saying that before Abraham was, I am he, is to say that from ancient times, I've been destined to be God's Christ. About the I am he, 
this occurs various places in John. I think maybe the clearest and most revealing instance of it is in chapter 4 when he's talking to the Samaritan woman. She says, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am, or in the NRSV more accurately, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. The NRSV also gets it right in John 8, starting in verse 23. He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. They said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Why do I speak to you at all? Oi! And a few verses later, he adds, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, right, that's who he is, he's this Messiah in that vision of Daniel 7, then you will realize that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but I speak these things as the Father instructed me. To believe that Jesus is he, or is the one, is to believe that he is God's Christ. That, as we know by John's explicit thesis statement in chapter 20, is what the book is really going for. It doesn't anywhere say that you need to believe that Jesus is God himself. The Greek phrase ego eimi, literally I am, or idiomatically in English, it's me or I'm the one, that's not a way of claiming to be God himself. John 17, 5 So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. That, I think, is talking about predestination. He's saying that he's always been destined to have this glory, which in John sort of paradoxically consists of his horrible but wonderful death and the events that follow. So he's basically praying that God will give him the glory that God has planned for him so to speak, that he's had in God's presence before the world existed, right? This glory's always been there with God, but now it's going to come into reality in his life. Again, see my conversations with Dr. Smith about this Jewish idiom of talking about things as always having existed with God. Now Matt's second question, he says, is with regard to open theism. The podcast of yours which stands out to me the most is number 189, The Unfinished Business of the Reformation. The way you argue for a Unitarian reading of the New Testament is non-confrontational and highly persuasive. The most successful discussions I've had with Trinitarian friends have been where I have argued for Unitarianism in the fashion you do in this presentation. I was wondering if you had considered doing a similar presentation for open theism where you simply identify non-controversial facts and weigh up the possible theories. I've considered piecing together a presentation myself, but I think it is beyond my capacity and intelligence. Thanks so much, Dale. Your work is very encouraging to me. Thank you, Matt. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I do think that podcast 189 and the published book chapter that resulted from it is maybe the most important thing I've done, or it's in the top three. And I was inspired to argue that way by earlier, you know, 19th century American Unitarian Christians, such as Harvard professor Henry Ware that you can hear in podcast 191. No, I haven't thought about treating open theism in that way. That's a really interesting suggestion. There are a lot of interesting statements in the Bible which better fit open theism than all the rival schemes. It's a good idea. 
I think I'll consider it if and when I decide to spend more of my kind of research time on open theism. And about open theism, I'm about to do a podcast interview about that, so you might want to stay tuned on the blog. I'll probably link this episode on other podcasts soon. Some other questions come from Greg, who emailed me. He says, listen to Podcast 316. That was my review of Dr. Papandrea's book, Trinity 101, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In the first part of his email, he shares some personal details I'm not sure that I should share, but he says he's been attending a Protestant Trinitarian church for a very long time. He says that COVID has prevented them from church attendance more recently, but then he says, in listening to your podcast and reading other materials, I have come to realize they, he means the people at this Trinitarian church, are worshiping a non-existent deity, the Trinity. I am reluctant to continue attending services there. We stopped giving to a ministry group we had been supporting when my views on the Trinity became an issue. Any advice? The church in question virtually never mentions the Trinity, except when they occasionally use the congregational hymn, Holy, 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 but it is part of their doctrine. I can't financially support an organization which I'm convinced worships a non-existent deity. However, I'm not prepared to join Jehovah's Witnesses. Thank you, Greg. Excellent questions. It is true that the triune God is a fictional character. There is no basis in scripture for it. This thing is a part of Catholic tradition. And as you've come to find out, the New Testament makes a lot more sense without this extra element, without this extra character imposed onto it. In the New Testament, the one true God is just the Father, and Jesus is the Son of God, his servant, his Christ, who is a man. I think what you choose to support is a matter of your conscience before God, and I think you have to pray about that and see where you believe that God is leading you and your wife to support. Now, about church, I would say two things. First, what's ideal would be to fellowship with Christians who are also Unitarian Christians. And the best way to find those that I know is to get a free membership at the Unitarian Christian Alliance. So go to UnitarianChristianAlliance.org, and there are some simple videos there that will coach you through just signing up for a free membership. And this will give you a member page, and it will show you other like-minded believers who are in your area. You can also find churches, Bible studies, and online fellowships in this way. Another place you can look is the church directory of the Church of God General Conference or Church of God Abrahamic Faith. Be careful, there's a bunch of Church of God denominations out there, but when you find the right one and you look at their statement of faith, you'll realize that it's Unitarian and they have a church directory. Another place you can look is the Scattered Brethren Network at scatteredbrethren.org. And I'll put links to all of these on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. So that's what would be ideal. It's wonderful to worship God and to serve God together and to not have to be always worrying about confusing Jesus with God and talking about this fictional character like really the Bible is about this triune God. But about worshiping a non-existent deity, as I talk about in Podcast 302, the stages of Trinitarian commitment, the status quo in Trinitarian churches is really confusion. And the good thing about that is that the more Bible-oriented the church is, the more, really, they are just following a biblical pattern of worship and a biblical pattern of thinking. 
right? So typically they're probably not praying to the Trinity, but they're praying to the Father in Jesus' name. As is the New Testament pattern, they're probably worshiping the Father and the Son, like you see in Revelation 5. They're probably not really worshiping the Spirit too much or the Trinity. And I think we have to realize that God is merciful, and He's not going to, so to speak, plug His ears and just ignore people because they've been handed on this background assumption that somehow the Father isn't all of God, but there's two others in there somehow. To the extent that they're worshiping God, loving God with all their heart, and walking in discipleship to Jesus, they are in fact having fellowship with the Father and Son, as John says. And this false theology doesn't prevent that. It does result in a lot of confusion, and specifically confusing together Jesus with God. But I would say it's definitely better to stay in fellowship with born-again people who are friends with God and Jesus, even if they're confused about how to understand those two. It's better to stick with them than to wander alone. But what's still better is to fellowship with believers where these confusions are not an issue. So I pray that God will guide you and your wife and that you'll find a good landing place. Whether it's to stay put, you know, these churches vary tremendously in how tolerant they are of Unitarian theology, or whether it's to move on or maybe even to start a Bible study or an online fellowship or even a church. I don't know what God's will is for you, but I think that you can find it. Stick with your convictions. Don't be too judgmental of the confused believers around you. Be as helpful as you can and find out what role God wants you to play. That's my advice. This week's thinking music has been the track My Tide Beach by Little Glass Men. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can download or listen to that entire track. Soon I'll be having a private Q&A session with Patreon supporters, so do check out patreon.com trinities if you're interested in being one of those supporters. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.